all things continually lead back to serpents, dragons, fairies, Nephilim, and fallen angels. In the distance looms a mystical mountain. As Mike Heiser used to say, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's probably important. At its peak, a great fire burns, concealing the Prometheus lens. This development of this knowledge that's being talked about within the mystery schools. An ancient artifact said to reveal the hidden truth within a deliberately darkened world. There is a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the people's little world. Join us as we travel and explore the vast unknown. It's a hero's journey with dragons to slay, damsels to save, and innumerable treasures to hoard. Torches high. The Smithsonian, they'd call wind of a giant skeleton. They would send their agents out to get it. But it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality. We are all on the hero's journey. Mankind has been in contact with and influenced by extraterrestrials. Leave the Sitchin mound of bull feathers out of it. You know, look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective. Different perspective. What's happening? What is up? Hold out your glass, because we're going to fill it up. Welcome to the Prometheus Lens Podcast, the place where the conversations are always enlightening. I'm your host, Justin. Here, we like to use the allegory of the Prometheus Lens to take a second look at everything. Welcome back. This is the third session of our series with the Enuma Elish, with the man, the myth, the legend, the Jedi himself. Dr. Judd, thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me, Justin. Oh, yeah. This has been a, a really great study, and uh, I really appreciate your time sitting down with me and going through this because uh, yeah, these are very fascinating subjects, so it's really great to have a, a scholarly guide along with me on this journey. <laughs> hey, I'm happy to do it because it's good for me to revisit this material you know, from time to time, um, particularly because it's so important really for like we talked about the last couple of episodes, the genesis of really biblical studies and, and biblical archeology. span And also too, just like, you know, with Christians, cause all this stuff is, you know, kind of interwoven and interlinked. And, uh, I found that a lot of Christians just don't dive in this material and, you know, we're, you know, we're commanded to, to be knowledgeable and, and, and be able to give accounts for the, the faith that we have. So these, yeah, these well, discussions are important. And if, I mean, if people have trepidation about that, um, I would encourage them to look at, at people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you know, in the context that they're at, I mean, they're in Babylon. They're basically, they're basically, you know, recruited into the, the, the court retinue uh, of Nebuchadnezzar II, and he trains them. You know, they they study all of the literature we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, so they basically become experts in Mesopotamian culture and languages and, and and mythology and religion. Of course, without committing, you know, to those pagan traditions, and so they're they become versed in. in so any over the years, I say that just to say that if people have pause about that, any time that I, I've had pause about it, you know, in decades past, um, you know, consider, 
consider Daniel and his comrades, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, serving, you know, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar II, yet maintaining their own loyalty and faith to Yahweh through all of that. Yeah. Yes, I agree completely. And then also, too, they were trained, you know, they were known as, you know, Magi. Magi, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They studied the stars, and God spoke to those people through their looking at the stars and mapping the stars and, and these traditions and things. So Precis- that was revealing Precisely. of the Messiah. I was just about to say that, to bring it to, bring it to ground. Um, the, the whole reason that the later generations of Magi even knew about that is because of the Babylonian captivity and the fact that, that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there. Uh, to introduce the that that school of, of of Mesopotamian philosophers and scholars to the the Old Testament, essentially, and the prophecies about the Messiah, mm-hmm. um, and so you've got these two traditions, you know, that are basically not compromisingly interwoven, but interwoven nonetheless, so that those later generations of Magi will recognize that oh, when when Nibiru, when Nibiru swings around, not not the fake Nibiru, the the Sitchin uh, planet X Nibiru, but Jupiter, Jupiter. When it swings around and, and and makes this celestial event. That was the sign and timing that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that was the uh, the the king planet, right? King planet, Mar- mm-hmm. Marduk star. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's get on in here. Last time we left you guys, we had uh, closed out with the battle and him uh, defeating Tiamat and taking uh, all the other gods and stuff and her creations as captive. Uh, so we ended with uh, we we touched on five, but there's lots of stuff in there that we're going to tie up some loose ends as we start this one. But um, let's see here. When we get there, he talks about uh, all the creations. And all the things that he done after his victory, but he said uh, concerning the high gods and concerning the stars, he placed constellations for each one, and then established the year to set forth its subdivisions. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, I assumed that was you know like the zodiacs, you know, setting yes. up the zodiac yeah. system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he assigned three stars to signify each of the 12 months. And, you know, in modern astrology, we know that as the, the deacons. Mm-hmm. So, and then he set forth the station, just as you mentioned, Nibiru. Mm-hmm. And this was Jupiter. But he made all these stations for Enlil and Ea, but it divided them in hemispheres. And he divided them in two, one the north for Enlil and the south for Ea. And it says, while the equator ones was Anu. But I just thought this was amazing. Just uh, this ancient tablet, you know, having this precise of measurements and knowledge. And and, mm-hmm. and we're, we're to believe these were just ancient knuckle-dragging, you know, stupid mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And that is totally not the case. Uh, no. Well, I mean, the, and there, there are two... There are two things really to consider there, uh, and and as modern people, the temptation is is to. I was just talking about this this morning on a posting. The temptation is to commit presentism, the the capital crime of historiography. That is to to basically project 
current cultural norms or values on onto the past um and and evolutionists are or are notorious for this considering our our forebears knuckle dragging idiots you know just constantly caricaturing ancient and prehistoric peoples when in fact you know they had the same psychological equipment that we do they were just as intelligent and inventive the second thing to consider is the fact that they were also getting source material from divine divine sources fallen divine sources but divine sources nonetheless um and so these these astronomical apportionments that show up in in works like the Enumilitia and even some of the second temple period literature has this in it. Enoch has as as astronomical data. Um and another thing is that it's it is interesting here and I don't I don't want to harp on this too long, but um it speaks to the uh to the preciseness, the precision and accuracy and, and depth of the development of these ancient sciences uh, that they were able to, you know, once again, taking in both human intelligence and the outside information that's being given to them, this very sophisticated stuff. I mean, this is stuff that ancients and late prehistoric peoples extrapolated calculus and engineering from. So one of the things that it illustrates is that they understood that that they were on a moving object that it was a spheroid object and that it had direct repercussions in terms of their their relative position to those clusters of of celestial bodies and stars and whatnot which means that prehistoric and ancient peoples knew about something called procession which i'm sure you've read about in the course of, of studying this material and procession is the is is the spinning, but but particularly the spinning and the, the wobbling that the earth has, the axis of the earth has. And this often comes up in conversation in terms of the shape of the earth. And you know, is the earth is the earth a globe? Is it flat? Um, some people will defer to the fact that it's that that ancient peoples conceived of the world as as flat well that's that's cosmic geography that's celestial geography it's different than than how they actually conceptualize the sky now you've got the melding of that in these two you know in these two sources of information um but but it it clearly demonstrates that they understood procession uh, and that, that their their ideas of a, a celestial heaven and, and earth were different than the more mundane conceptions of the earth. And see, that's something, I mean, I've looked into these things, but I've been really like deep diving here recently. I have got the, uh, the audio books of uh, Graham Hancock. Yeah. And been listening to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know he's, you know, not a Christian, but man, he is just beating all around the truth. He's just missing, you know, some, in my opinion, just some key pieces. And he would have, you know, the most holistic picture out of anybody that, that I've heard speak on these well, things. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, of an agreement with that because, um, and I think you and I may have talked about this, but I, I, I read Graham Hancock's uh, Fingerprints of the Gods um, back when I was a long-haired hippie. <laughs> in college, when 
my second year in college, it came out and, uh, uh, I was, I was a history major and a music major, but I, I mean, I, I instantly knew that this guy was asking questions that A, needed to be asked and B, the, the general academic community was not asking, mm. um, that there were questions here that were very relevant and pertinent to an accurate, or at least a more accurate understanding of the human past, um, and potentially what, what things culturally influenced human civilization, human societies that may not have been indigenous to the earth. Now, again, Hancock is still basically a materialist, so he's not willing to come out and ascribe a supernatural identity to, to that agency, that outside influencing agency. Mm -hmm. um, but again, he's asking questions that need to be asked and he takes a lot of flack from it. Yeah. Uh, for it at, at conferences and things like that. And I, unfairly so. I think a lot of times academics and scholars forget that, that it's it's avocationals that also bring a lot to the table. People that are just as as adept, you know, they've done the 10,000 man hours. They, they've earned the authority. Um, I, you know, it makes me think of like Michael Ventress, he, you know, this guy that was an architect. Um, that was his trade. His avocation was ancient languages. And we wouldn't be able to understand linear A Greek that the Minoans wrote in and spoke if it hadn't been for the work of Michael Ventris, this guy who was not, not an academic. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, 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 academics for the most part need to take a step back because there are people out there who can make these significant contributions because they're thinking outside of the box. And yeah. Different perspective. A, say they've got a different, you know, fresh perspective, you know, but I think you're right. You know, he, he's just right there, you know, dancing around the supernatural. He even acknowledges that there were these, you know, these so-called culture heroes that he's talking about. Oh yeah. The Veracocha um, and stuff. The Veracocha. Yeah. Exactly. The, the feathered serpent, the, the, uh, uh, you know, their their features are very similar wherever they are, but these culture givers, you know, if you look at that through a biblical lens yeah. uh, or even a Mesopotamian lens, you're talking about these Anunnaki. seraphimic, uh, you know, reptilian skinned looking uh, entities that are, are these cultural engineers, basically. Yeah. And um, been... you know, we, we know them as as watchers and, and seraphim and in the case of. Um, Mesopotamia, the Apkalu, and to a degree, the Anunnaki. Um, but Graham Hancock is not willing to to give them that agency, despite the fact that all of these ancient literatures and traditions um, speak to that very thing that he that he's interested in. Um, yeah. Well, see, I've been good. listening to his stuff though, and he keeps mentioning this Hamlet's Mill. Hamlet's Mill. Right. So I got that book just the other day. And I've been cracking that open and he's talking about, you know, the procession and the connection right. with the 70 and the 72. And we even like, see yeah. that in our biblical texts, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I would now that book is a commitment, as you no doubt are discovering. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those worthwhile books like Hancock's books, because um, in the case of ancient mythology, um, the authors are, are making the case that 
very much like anthropologists in the golden age of that field made, you know, that when they begin to study anthropology in kind of a laboratory setting where they had indigenous peoples like, you know, the Kung Bushmen or the Trobriand Islanders in the South Pacific or, or, you know, Indians in the Andes, you know, take your pick. They're, they're studying people who are basically still living a, a, with a mythological mind. Mm-hmm. And so they articulate, articulate in their ethnographies things like, well, you know, these aren't just fables to these people. They're, they're functional components to their culture. And in fact, they... The ways of explaining natural they, phenomena. Exactly, exactly. In other words, they perform a lot of the same tasks intellectually that science, what we would call science does. In fact, there's one, one anthropologist that I'm thinking about who really articulates it beautifully was Branislaw Milanowski. Mm-hmm. And he, he said, he said that, you know, he actually wrote a book called magic science and religion where he's saying, you know, those lines that we draw between, you know, the hard sciences and what might be considered, you know, mythology or, or fancy or whatever doesn't exist mm-hmm. in the ancient world. And mythology, in fact, was kind of the ocean upon which those sciences floated because in, in the examination in Hamlet's mill, as you, you've no doubt discovered, if you've gotten very far, yeah, the, the watching of the stars, which we're talking about here, um, was based on the identities and the interactions of of the gods of these various cultures and societies running the gamut of sophistication and the you know the very movements you know and and placement during different times of the years corresponded to you know the panoply of, of mythological drama that existed in those traditions mm-hmm. um and by watching the stars they're able to extrapolate more sophisticated mathematics and you develop calculus and engineering and you're able to build, you know, more sophisticated structures. And again, it's both the human intelligence aspect and and as believers, we can say there are these outside celestial influences that are giving this information, but it nonetheless illustrates the importance of mythology, the fundamental importance of mythology and the understanding of, of, of what we call science what ancient and prehistoric peoples would not have intellectually compartmentalized. Yeah, see, and that's the thing with, with Hancock stuff, because I, I ordered that Hamlet's meal, and I had to wait a little while for it to come. Mm-hmm. And I had just ordered, like, a a big bunch. I ordered, like, six or eight of Brian Forrester's books, because mm-hmm. it was all on, you know, the Peruvian and Bolivian culture. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was fascinating how he had to, made correlations with the the path of Veracocha mm-hmm. and how that documented, you know, story, history, mythology, whatever you want to label it, but all the cities that he said he went and he mm-hmm. had, you know, these disciples with him called the Veracochan mm-hmm. and they performed miracles and taught the sacred sciences and all this stuff. But every single one of those places, that path is where you find all of your megalithic structure mm-hmm. and every single one of those places they find elongated skulls. 
Yeah, well, I yeah, and I'm trying to remember, but I'm sure that places like Oyente Tambo and and Waman, you know, all of those are going to be on those lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I did the work with Marzulli in Peru that first t- first time we went down, um, doing the anthropometry on the skulls, I could never, I could never say conclusively out of the, let's say the sampling of forty that we had at that museum that there was any any skeletal morphology that made me think you know that oh i'm holding a nephilim skull mm. but there there was there was there were some that had anomalous morphology you know like extra foramen and uh, just weird you know sagittal uh, suture on a few is missing sag- sagittal suture plating fusion which you know there are there are pathologies that can cause that but um then you start talking to you know some of the native population there who who maintain the oral tradition of these, you know, like the the Paracas and the Nazca culture mythology um, about these bird men that came down and gave them their culture uh, about um, the, well, the reason that those skulls are elongated like that is because that's what their first kings look like. Yeah, they're imitating them. And so the question that I kept asking LA the whole time there is like, what if they're if they're doing this headboarding and, and and you know headbinding and cradle boarding cranial deformation as a mark of emulation of the gods, their first god kings, what do these things look like? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I mean, smoking gun Nephilim skull find aside, which we would all love to have, it still speaks to the fact that they're preserving this tradition of their oldest god kings. Uh, and they're, you know, they're continuing in this very visible way, but it's not any different than uh, like the paper. I don't know if you read the paper that I wrote on, on the ref, the use of, of King words in Eurasia. Mm, yeah. It's the same kind of cultural impact. This is that these outside influences had, you know, so that there's this huge 90 degree angle cultural change. Uh, wherever it's felt. And of, of course, South America would be no no exception to the what they call the Viracochas, what Mesopotamians would have called the Apkalu, what yeah. Second Temple same story everywhere, same thing. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that wasn't a rabbit trail, guys. All that's connected. That's what we're no, talking about the passing down yeah. of the knowledge. Where did the knowledge come from? Mm-hmm. This is amazing stuff. Uh, but uh, I guess treading forward, uh, he talks about all these different signs and, and the, the moons and it talks about the horns of the moon, you know, talking about the, the crescent of the moon and all these different stages. Still another very potent preserved symbol because the Greeks knew that symbol as the horns of pan. Mm-hmm. Uh, pan was often associated with um, uh, Selene, the moon goddess, uh, which is why, you, you know, in, those those analogs exist in older forms. Uh, Hathor. The, yeah, exactly. Precisely. Ishtar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but as it was going down through there, I thought it was cool. This uh, And this was in the footnotes of the book that I was reading because uh, this wasn't in the actual text. But when it talked about the cycles of the moon, it said mm-hmm. the 15th day will be halfway at every month's midpoint. But in the notes, it said the Shabbat too. 
which is the same origin word as Sabbath. Mm-hmm. That's where we mm-hmm. get that word from. Mm-hmm. But then it mentions Samash, and we see mm-hmm. Samash, you know, he's the sun deity. You see him in right. the, the so, epics yeah. of Gilgamesh and just all these well, old, you know. He's di- yeah, he's also dictating the code to Hammurabi on the Hammurabi stula. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he was very predominant God, you know, while sun deities were. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, what's up? Tom Dunn here from Through the Black. We have launched our new ministry outreach, No More Dead Babies. And the website is nomoredeadbabies.com. We want you to go to that website and get a free t-shirt, okay? Um, and uh, we want you to join the movement, okay? We need soldiers to step up and say that they're gonna be a voice for the voiceless, okay? Guys, we've never done anything like this before. This is a big deal, and I don't know who all is ready for it out there, but it's time to step up, okay? And we're asking you to go to the website and order the shirt. The shirt is free, but you gotta pay for shipping, okay? Um, and uh, we're gonna ship it out to you as soon as we get it. You, you tell us what size you need, and then we're gonna send you the t-shirt, okay? Join us. Uh, the goal is to get thousands of these shirts. I keep pushing this. I think this boldness can be contagious, contagious, contagious. Hey listeners, it's Nick from Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company. I want to invite you to try something new. Here at Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company, we have a bold and slow roasted coffee that is 100% organic and ethically sourced. There are no pesticides or fungicides from the plantations we import our coffee from, and it's all single source too. We have light, medium, and dark roast. Even decaf coffee as well to satisfy whatever kind of coffee you drink. We also have a variety of flavored coffees for you to try, including our hazelnut and apple pie flavored coffees, which are both big sellers. You can order our coffee at www.kevlarjoes.com. You can also follow us at Facebook, Instagram, or X for Kevlar Joe news, deals, and your daily dose of coffee-related memes. So make sure to like and follow our pages. And I'll leave you with this, listener. The world isn't a safe place right now, and it seems like it's always teetering on the edge. But don't forget, like it says in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill and cannot be hid. Let your light shine before all men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So be bold, be humble, and be Kevlar. What's happening? What's up? Hold out your glass. We're going to try and fill it up. Hey, guys. So excited to announce we're having our second Q&A with the man, the myth, the legend, the Judd-I himself, Dr. Judd Burton. This is going to be February the 24th at 8 p.m. So go ahead and get your pen, your paper, start writing down your questions for the man. And if you're a paying subscriber, you will get a link to join us live in the Q&A video chat about 30 minutes before it starts. So, if you are not a member, head on over to PrometheusLens.com or a shortcut is PrometheusLens.Supercast.com. It's quick, it's easy, go check it out, hope to see you guys there. Torch is high.